Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. You know, when I was preparing this this evening, I was um, I'm going to do uh, introductions for all of the books, and in reading the intro- introductions for the books that we've chosen tonight, it really hit me just the amount of incredible work she put together. I mean, the the emotional depths that she had to mine to create these characters, the the kind of discipline it would take to visit and revisit and explore such difficult themes was just amazing to me. And um, what was also amazing to me as I was um, getting ready to prepare, as I was preparing for the writers who were going to be doing this event, I thought, wow, we really have a great group of people uh, who will be uh, representing Los Angeles and the work of Toni Morrison. So we're very, very happy about that. Um, A note on books, Uh, just so you know, um, everyone, every bookstore in the world wants Toni Morrison novels right now. Everybody. So much so that we couldn't get any. Okay, just just know, just know where her novels were. Just know everybody wants, we are not lazy, we really wanted her books here, you know. But um, we couldn't we couldn't get all of them. But if we'd love it if you want to any of the books, any of her books in her um, from her career or that you've heard this evening, uh, please let us know. You can buy the books here and we can order for you and hopefully it'll come in the next week. I also want to let you know that all the writers here have also published books and we have them available at the register. So please make sure to stop by and, and pick them up. Okay. Um, when uh, the exercise for this evening was, I asked the writers uh, if uh, they could choose um, any book in um, Toni Morrison's repertoire, uh, choose a passage, and tell me why. And of course, as you can imagine, there were several books that were chosen, a wide variety of them, and I'm so looking forward to uh, hearing how they introduce it, what their works, what what Toni Morrison meant to them and to their writing. Okay, so the. The first book that we'll be exploring will be Jazz from Library Journal, a lyrical and haunting novel that opens tragically after Joe Trace, a salesman of women's beauty products, has shot his teenage lover, Dorcas, and his wife, Violet, has attempted to mutilate the young woman's corpse during the funeral. The vision of Morrison's nameless narrator frames this love story, and this anonymous voice slowly draws readers into the rhythm of the city, specifically Harlem, where jazz casts bewitching spells on people's psyches. Morrison has demonstrated again why she is unequivocally unequivocally one of the finest contemporary writers in America. To bring jazz to concert is Terry Wolverton, one of my personal sheroes. She is the author of 11 books of fiction, her most recent, Ruin Porn, a collection of poems that she created using the disarticulations process she pioneered. 
Her novel and poems, Embers, was a finalist for the Penn USA Litfest Poetry Award and the Lambda Book Award. Wolverton has taught creative writing since 1977. I'm just reading that. How many thousands of writers that she has helped produce in this city and beyond? Thousands of writers. What? Yes. Really. And I know some of those writers who just went on just to incredible success. Incredible success. Uh, in 1997, she founded Writers at Work, a center for creative writing in LA, where she offers several weekly workshops in fiction and poetry. She spent 13 years as, at the Women's Building, a public center for women's culture, eventually serving as its executive director. Please welcome Terry Wolverton. Thank you. I'm so um, honored to be here this evening uh, in the company of all these amazing writers. And um, it's so fitting that here we are at Skylight Books, which has been um, such an important literary home to uh, those of us who are Los Angeles writers. Uh, I remember. Um, going to see Toni Morrison speak at Cal State LA, and it had to be the early 1980s. And uh, they, she did a Q&A session afterward, and somebody said, well, how do you do it? You're an, at the time, she was still an editor for Knopf, and you, know, you work all day on these other people's books, and you produce these amazing works. And, and she said, I don't do anything else. I go to work, I come home, and I write. I don't go to the movies, I don't go out to dinner, I don't do anything else. And that was the kind of dedication and commitment that she brought to her work and that she gave to all of us. Um, and I learned so many things from her, uh, from studying her writing, um, but one of them is the, the beautiful lyricism of her prose, and that was my reason for choosing this excerpt from Jazz. I'm crazy about this city. Daylight slants like a razor, cutting the buildings in half. In the top half, I see looking faces, and it's not easy to tell which are people, which the work of stonemasons. Below is shadow, where any blasé thing takes place, clarinets and lovemaking, fists and the voices of sorrowful women. A city like this one makes me dream tall and feel in on things. Hep. It's the bright steel rocking above the shade below that does it. When I look over strips of green grass lining the river at church steeples and into the cream and copper halls of apartment buildings, I'm strong. Alone, yes but top-notch and indestructible, like the city in 1926, when all the wars are over and there will never be another one. 
the people down there in the shadow are happy about that. At last, at last, everything's ahead. The smart ones say so, and people listening to them and reading what they write down agree. Here comes the new, look out, there goes the sad stuff, the bad stuff, the things nobody could help stuff, the way everybody was then and there. Forget that. History is over, y'all, and everything's ahead at last. In the halls and offices, people are sitting around thinking future thoughts about projects and bridges and fast-clicking trains underneath. The A&P hires a colored clerk. Big-legged women with pink kitty tongues roll money into green tubes for later on. Then they laugh and put their arms around each other. Regular people corner thieves in alleys for quick retribution. And if he is stupid and has robbed wrong, thieves corner him too. Hoodlums hand out goodies, do their best to stay interesting. And since they are being watched for excitement, they pay attention to their clothes and the carving out of insults. Nobody wants to be an emergency at Harlem Hospital, but if the Negro surgeon is visiting, pride cuts down the pain. And although the hair of the first class of colored nurses was declared unseemly for the official Bellevue nurse's cap, there are 35 of them now, all dedicated and superb in their profession. Nobody says it's pretty here. Nobody says it's easy either. What it is is decisive. And if you pay attention to the street plans all laid out, the city can't hurt you. I haven't got any muscles, so I can't really be expected to defend myself. But I do know how to take precaution. Mostly it's making sure no one knows all there is to know about me. Second, I watch everything and everyone and try to figure out their plans, their reasonings long before they do. You have to understand what it's like taking on a big city. I'm exposed to all sorts of ignorance and criminality. Still, this is the only life for me. I like the way the city makes people think they can do what they want and get away with it. I see them all over the place, wealthy whites and plain ones too, pile into mansions decorated and redecorated by black women richer than they are, and both are pleased with the spectacle of the other. I've seen the eyes of black Jews brimful of pity for everyone not themselves, graze the food stalls and the ankles of loose women, while a breeze stirs the white plumes on the helmets of the UNIA men. A colored man floats down out of the sky blowing a saxophone, and below him, in the space between two buildings, a girl talks earnestly to a man in a straw hat. 
He touches her lip to remove a bit of something there. Suddenly, she is quiet. He tilts her chin up. They stand there. Her grip on her purse slackens, and her neck makes a nice curve. The man puts his hand on the stone wall above her head. By the way his jaw moves and the turn of his head, I know he has a golden tongue. The sun sneaks into the alley behind them. It makes a pretty picture on its way down. Do what you please in the city. It is there to back and frame you no matter what you do. And what goes on on its blocks and lots and side streets is anything the strong can think of and the weak will admire. All you have to do is heed the design, the way it's laid out for you. Consider it, mindful of where you want to go and what you might need tomorrow. I lived a long time, maybe too much, in my own mind. People say I should come out more, mix. I agree that I close off in places, but if you have been left standing as I have while your partner overstays another appointment or promises to give you exclusive attention after supper but is falling asleep just as you have begun to speak, well, it can make you inhospitable if you aren't careful. The last thing I want to be. I knew she can do it. I knew she can do it. So she's our first one, our first reader. She's been doing it for a long time, and I knew that she would knock it out of the ballpark. Thank you, Terry. Our next book is Paradise from the Kirkus Review. The violence men inflict on women and the painful irony of an all-black town whose citizens themselves become oppressors are the central themes of Morrison's rich, symphonic seventh novel. The story begins with a scene of Faulknerian intensity. In 1976, in rural Oklahoma, nine men from the nearby town of Ruby attack a former convent now occupied by women fleeing from abusive husbands or lovers or otherwise unhappy pasts. Women who chose themselves for company, whose solidarity and solitude rebuke the male-dominated culture that now exacts its revenge. That sounds simplistic, but the novel isn't, because Morrison makes, it, makes of it a many-layered mystery, interweaving the individual stories of these women with an amazingly compact social history of Ruby's founding families and their interrelationships over several decades. To illuminate paradise is the amazing writer Gary Phillips, author of 18 novels. <laughs> Yeah, 18 novels, <laughs> nine comics, 50 short stories, 60 short stories. Like, update your website, update your website. Just I'll say that to you, okay? <laughs> Gary is from Los Angeles. He is the author of the Ivan Monk series of mysteries and other novels and Angel Town and other comics. He is co-editor of the Switchblade Noir series. From I'm going to keep going until oh I'm done. You got a long way to go. And the editor of Orange County, Orange County Noir from Akashic Books, Gary Phillips. 
Um, can you hear me? I'm going to use my uh, indoor voice. Uh, this is great. I, I really appreciate Noel inviting us to, to be part of this evening. And, um, you, you know, as, as, as uh, both as, as Terry was reading and as, as Noel was uh, recounting the, uh, the plot of this, the one thing I really appreciate about Terry Wolverton being a pulp writer myself is that there's a lot of pulp in her stuff. Right now, obviously, she's a much better writer. She really elevates this to a different level, and she really has insight and uh, takes these things apart. But you know, part of the the thing that sets this book in motion is uh, these men attack the covenant, but they also think these women are witches, right? And in if I recall correctly, in Beloved, there's a ghost. So there's a lot of occult. There's a lot of I, I love this stuff that, that permeates her work that you see that's threaded through all these things. And part of it, of course, is about the myth uh, and the things that we brought with us from Africa to, to this country. And that's woven into to the, the work that she presents uh, on the page and what she talked about. So I, I'm just really um, pleased with that. And so the, the passage I'm going to read doesn't quite reflect all that, but it's my kind of passage. With Carlos's help, it was as easy if, as, if, as it was exciting. The lies told to her girlfriends had to be cemented. The items left behind had to signal return, not escape. Driver's license, a duplicate. Her teddy bears, watch, toiletries, jewelry, credit cards. This last made it necessary to do massive check cashing and shopping on the very day they drove away. She wanted to buy more, much more, for Carlos, but he insisted otherwise. He never took presents from her in all the time she knew him, four months. Wouldn't even let her buy meals. He would close his beautiful eyes and shake his head as though her offer saddened him. Pallas had met him in the school parking lot the day her Toyota wouldn't start. Actually, she met him that day but had seen him many times. He was the movie star-looking maintenance man at her high school. All the girls went creamy over him. The day he pressed the accelerator to the floor, telling Pallas her gas line was flooded, was the beginning. He offered to follow her home in his Ford to make sure she didn't stall out again. He didn't, and he waved goodbye. Pallas bought him a present, an album, the next day, and had trouble making him accept it. Only if you let me buy you a chili dog, he said. Pallas's mouth had gone felt with the thrill of it all. They saw each other every weekend after that. She did everything she could think of to get him to make love to her. He responded passionately to their necking, but for weeks never allowed more. He was the one who said, when we are married. That's how you know it's fiction, by the way. <laughs> Carlos was not a janitor, really. He sculpted, and when Pallas told him about her painter mother and where she lived, he smiled and said it was perfect place for an artist. The whole thing fell into place. Carlos could leave his job with little outcry during the holidays. Milton True Love would be extra busy with clients, parties, showcase concerts and television deals. Pallas searched through years of birthday and Christmas cards from her mother for the most recent address. And the lovers were off without a hitch or a cloud, except for the crazy black woman ruining the Christmas cards. Pallas snuggled Seneca's breast, which, although uncomfortable, diluted the chill racking her. The woman in the front seat were querulous again in high-pitched voices that hurt her head. 
Exhibitionist bitch. Soane is a friend of ours. What do I tell her now? She's Connie's friend. Nothing to do with you. I'm the one sell her the peppers, make up her tonic. What's that make you, a chemist? It's just rosemary, a little bran mixed with aspirin. Whatever it is, it's my responsibility. Only when Connie's drunk. Keep your nasty mouth off her. She never drank till you came. That's what you say. She even sleeps in the wine cellar. Her bedroom is down there. You such a fool. She's not a maid anymore. She can sleep upstairs if she wanted. She just wants to be close to that liquor is all. God, I hate your guts. Seneca intervened in a soft voice designed for harmony. Connie's not drunk. She's unhappy. She'd have, she should have come with us, though it would have been different. It was fine, just fine, said Gigi. Till those fucking preacher types came over, she lit a fresh cigarette from a dying one. Can't you stop smoking for two minutes? Mavis asked. No. Don't see what that nigga ever saw in you, Mavis continued. Or maybe I do, since you can't seem to keep it covered. Jealous? Like hell. Like hell? Like hell? Nobody's fucked you in ten years, you dried up husk. Get out! Mavis screamed, breaking the car. Get the hell out of my car. You gonna make me? Touch me. I'll tear your face off, you fucking felon. And she rammed her cigarette into Mavis's arm. They couldn't fight really well in the space available, but they tried. <laughs> Seneca held Pallas in her arms and watched. Once upon a time, she would try to separate them, but now she knew better. When they were exhausted, they'd stop, and peace would reign longer than if she interfered. Gigi knew Mavis's touchy parts, anything insulting to Connie and any reference to her fugitive state. On her last trip, Mavis learned from her mother of the warrant posted for her arrest for grand larceny, abandonment, and suspicion of murdering two of her children. The Cadillac rocked. Gigi was scrappy but vain. She didn't want bruises or scratches to mar her lovely face, and she worried constantly about her hair. Mavis was slow but a steady, joyful hitter. When Gigi saw blood, she assumed it was her own and scrambled from the car, Mavis scooting after her. After a metal hot sky void of even one arrow of birds, they fought on the road and its shoulder. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Our next book is Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is a powerful, sensual, and poetic exploration of four generations of a family mistakenly named Dead. Told through the eyes of Milkman, a rare male protagonist in Morrison's wonderful catalog of unforgettable characters, we discover a century's worth of secrets, ghosts, and troubles. Song of Solomon went on to win the National Book Critics Circle Award. To uh, bring Song of Solomon to life is Jervy Turvalon. Jervy Turvalon, come on out, you might as well. It's like <laughs> Jervy Turvalon is the author of All the Trouble You Need, Understand This, and the LA Times bestseller, Dead Above Ground, an award-winning poet, screenwriter, and dramatist. Jervy was born in New Orleans, raised in LA, and now lives in Altadena, California, with his wife and two daughters. Since you are from New Orleans, please welcome Jervy Turvalon. <laughs> okay, so I have uh, three daughters, and um, <laughs> yeah, who's counting? Uh, I think I, I think I'm accounting for all of them. Uh, okay, so 
I usually don't read forewords to books, but I read the foreword of this book, and I was quite moved by it because it has to do with Toni Morrison talking about her dad. And uh, I want my daughters to read this and uh, take heed. Each of his four children were convinced that he loved him or her best. He had sacrificed greatly for one, risking his house and his job. He took another to baseball games over whole summers while they lay in the grass listening to a portable radio, talking, evaluating the players on the field. In the company of one, his firstborn, he always beamed and preferred her cooking over everyone else's, <laughs> including his wife's. He carried a letter from me in his coat pocket for years and years and drove through blinding snowstorms to help me. Most important, he talked to each of us in a language cut to our different understandings. He had a flattering view of me as someone interesting, capable, witty, smart, high-spirited. I did not share that view of myself and wondered why he held it. That it was the death of that girl, the one who lived in his head, that I mourned when he died. Even more than I mourned him, I suffered the loss of the person he thought I was. I think it was because I felt closer to him than to myself that, after his death, I deliberately sought his advice for writing a novel to continue to elude me. What, what are the men you have known really like? He answered, whatever, is, whatever it is called, muse, inside inspiration, the dark finger that guides, bright angel, it exists in many forms. I have trusted ever since. I have no idea what she means, but it's lovely. Okay. Um, so I'm reading the uh, scene from here because I like salacious things, and this is weirdly salacious in a very kind of weirdly Victorian way. Uh, you can read along. It's on page 15. Um, Macon Dead never knew how it came about, how his only son acquired the nickname that stuck in in spite of his refusal to use it or acknowledge it. It was a matter that concerned him a good deal, for the giving of names in his family was always surrounded by what he believed to be monumental foolishness. No one mentioned to him the incident out of which the nickname grew because he was a difficult man to approach, a hard man with a manner so cool it discouraged casual or spontaneous conversation. Only Freddie, the janitor, took liberties with make him dead, liberties he purchased with the services he rendered, and Freddie was the last person on earth to tell him. So make him dead neither heard uh, of nor visualized Ruth's sudden terror, her awkward jump from the rocking chair, the boy's fall broken by the tiny footstool of Freddie's amused, admiring summation of the situation. Without knowing any of the details, however, he guessed with the accuracy of a mind sharpened by the, sharpened by, I thought I was running reading the wrong section, I panicked. Um, Milkman certainly didn't sound like the honest job of a dairyman or bring to his mind cold, bright cans standing on the brick porch, glittering like captains on guard. It sounded dirty, intimate, and hot. He knew that whatever, wherever the name came from, it had something to do with his wife and was like the emotion he always felt when thinking of her, coated with disgust. This disgust and the uneasiness with which he regarded his son affected everything he did in that city. If he could have felt sad, simply sad, it would have relieved him. Fifteen years of regret at not having a son had become the bitterness of finally having one in the most revolting circumstances. There had been a time when he had a head full of hair and when Ruth 
wore lovely, complicated underwear that he deliberately took a long time to undo. When all of his foreplay was untying, unclasping, unbuckling the snaps and strings of what must have been the most beautiful, the most delicate, the whitest and softest underwear on earth, each eye of her corset he toyed with, and there was 40, 20 on each side, each gross grain ribbon that threaded its pale blue way through the snowy top of the bodice he unlaced. He not only undid the blue bow, he pulled it all the way out of the hem so she had to re-thread it afterwards with a safety pin. The elastic bands that connected her perspiration shields to her slip, he unsnapped and snapped again, teasing her and himself with the sound of the snaps and the thrill of his fingertips on her shoulders. They never spoke during these undressings, but they giggled occasionally, and as when children's play doctor, undressing, of course, was the best part. When Ruth was naked and lying there, as moist and crumbly as unbleached sugar, he bent to unlace her shoes. That was the final delight, for once he had undressed her feet and peeled her stockings down over her ankles and toes, he entered her and ejaculated quickly. She liked it that way, so did he, and in almost 20 years during which he had not laid eyes on her naked feet, he missed only the underwear. Once he believed that the sight of her mouth on the dead man's fingers would be the thing he would remember always, he was wrong. Little by little, he remembered fewer and fewer of the details, and finally he had to imagine them, even fabricate them, guess what they must have been. The images left him, but the odiousness never did. For the nourishment of his outrage, he depended on the memory of her underwear, those round, innocent, corset eyes now lost to him forever. So if the people were calling his son Milkman, if she was lowering her eyelids and dabbing at the sweat on her top lip when he, she heard it, there was definitely some filthy connection, and it did not matter at all to make him dead whenever anyone gave him the details or not, and they didn't. No one both dared enough and cared enough to tell him. The ones who cared enough, Lena and Corinthians, the living proof of those years of undressing his wife, did not dare. And the one person who dared but didn't care to was the one person in the world he hated more than his wife in spite of the fact that she was his sister. He had not crossed the tracks to see her since his son was born, and he had no intention of renewing their relationship now. Thank you. Our next book is Sula. It's a big book, so big that uh, we'll have two writers explore it. Sula. Sula and Nell, both smart, both poor, raised in a small Ohio town, meet when they are 12. Through their gir girlhood years, they share everything until Sula gets out, out of the bottom, the hilltop neighborhood where beneath the surface hides a fierce resentment at failed crops, lost jobs, bug-ridden flower. In a clear, dark, resonant language, Morrison brilliantly evokes not only a bond between two lives, but the harsh, loveless, ultimately mad world in which that bond is destroyed, the world of the bottom and its people. Our first reader is Lisa Teasley. Lisa Teasley is the author of the acclaimed novels Heat Signature and Dive, and the award-winning story collection Glow in the Dark, published by Bloomsbury. Her frequent anth anthologized essays, stories, and poems have appeared in publications in media such as NPR, The Washington Post, The LA Times, Essence, 
Ziziva, Joyland, and Black Clock. She is a writer and presenter of the BBC TV documentary High School Prom and senior fiction editor at Los Angeles Review of Books. What I did not know is that she's also a successful painter, and she is represented by the Marie Baldwin Gallery. Please welcome Lisa Teasley. I am so honored to be here because Toni Morrison meant everything to me, means everything to me as a reader, as a writer, as a black woman. And I chose Sula because um, it's a story about friendship for me, uh, primarily. And in her incandescent prose, she shows how human we are, how the human in a black woman, the, human, the humanity in black people, the humanity in all of us. So I'm gonna read a section from when they were kids, how they first met. Nell and Sula walk through this valley of eyes, chilled by the wind and heated by the embarrassment of appraising stairs. The old men looked at their stock-like legs, dwelled on the cords in the backs of their knees and remembered old dance steps they had not done in 20 years. In their lust, which age had turned to kindness, they moved their lips as though to stir up the taste of young sweat on tight skin. Pig meat. The words were in all their minds, and one of them, one of the young ones, said it aloud, softly but definitively, and there was no mistaking the compliment. His name was Ajax, a 21-year-old pool haunt of sinister beauty, graceful and economical in every movement. He held a place of envy with men of all ages for his magnificently foul mouth. In fact, he seldom cursed. And the epithets he chose were dull, even harmless. His reputation was derived from the way he handled the words. When he said hell, he hit the H with his lungs. And the impact was greater than the achievement of the most imaginative foul mouth in the town. He could say shit with a nastiness impossible to imitate. So when he said pig meat, as Nell and Sula passed, they guarded their eyes lest someone see their delight. It was not really Edna Finch's ice cream that made them brave the stretch of those panther eyes. Years later, their own eyes would glaze as they cupped their chins in remembrance of their inchworm smiles, the squatting haunches, the track rail legs straddling broken chairs, the cream-colored trousers marking with a mere seam the place where the mystery curled. Those smooth vanilla crotches invited them those lemon-yellow garbadines beckoned to them. They moved toward the ice cream parlor like tightrope walkers, as thrilled by the possibility of a slip as by the maintenance of tension and balance. The least sideways glance, the merest toe stub, could pitch them into those creamy haunches spread wide with welcome. Somewhere beneath all of that daintiness, chambered in all that neatness, lay the thing that clotted their dreams, which was only fitting. 
for it was in dreams that the two girls had first met. Long before Edna Finch's mellow house opened, even before they marched through the chocolate halls of Garfield Primary School out onto the playground and stood facing each other through the ropes of the one vacant swing, go on, no, you go on. They had already made each other's acquaintance in the delirium of their noon dreams. They were solitary little girls whose loneliness was so profound it intoxicated them and sent them tumbling into technicolored visions that always included a presence, a someone who quite like the dreamer shared the delight of the dream. When Nell, an only child, sat on the steps of her back porch, surrounded by the high silence of her mother's incredibly orderly house, feeling the neatness pointing at her back, she studied the poplars and fell easily into a picture of herself lying on a flowered bed, tangled in her own hair, waiting for some fiery prince. He approached but never quite arrived, but always watching the dream along with her were some smiling, sympathetic eyes, someone as interested as she herself in the flow of her imagined hair, the thickness of the mattress of flowers, the voile sleeves that closed below her elbows in gold-threaded cuffs. Similarly, Sula, also an only child, but wedged into a household of throbbing disorder, constantly awry with things, people, voices, and the slamming of doors, spent hours in the attic behind a roll-up of linoleum, galloping through her own mind on a gray and white horse, tasting sugar and smelling roses in full view of a someone who shared both the taste and the speed. So when they met, first in those chocolate halls and next to the ropes of the swing, they felt the ease and comfort of old friends because each had discovered years before that they were neither white nor male and that all freedom and triumph was forbidden to them. They had set about creating something else to be. Their meeting was fortunate for it let them use each other to grow on daughters of distant mothers and incomprehensible fathers, Sula's because he was dead, Nell's because he wasn't. They found in each other's eyes the intimacy they were looking for. Nell Wright and Sula Peace were both 12 in 1922, wishbone thin and easy assed. Nell was the color of wet sandpaper, just dark enough to escape the blows of the pitch black true bloods and the contempt of all women who worried about such thing as bad blood mixtures and knew that the origins of a mule and a mulatto were one and the same. Had she been any lighter skinned, she would have neither needed her mother's protection on the way to school or a streak of men to defend herself. Sula was a heavy brown with a large, quiet eyes, one of which featured a birthmark that spread from the middle of the lid toward the eyebrow shaped something like a stemmed rose. It gave her otherwise plain face a broken excitement and blue blade threat like the keloid scar of the razored man who sometimes played checkers with her grandmother. The birthmark was to grow darker as the years passed, but now it was the same shade as her gold-flecked eyes, which to the end were as steady and clean as rain. Their friendship was as intense as it was sudden. Thank you.
to continue to explore Sula is Linnell George. Yes, Linnell George. Yes. She is a writer and reporter based in LA, telling the city's stories one sentence at a time. Her latest book, After Image, LA, Los Angeles Outside the Frame, is a collection of essays and photographs exploring LA's ever-shifting terrain. And if you haven't read Linnell's tribute to Toni Morrison in the LA Times, you must, you must, you must. So go home and Google it right away if you haven't read it. Please welcome Linnell George. <laughs> Thank you. Um, wow, it's great to be here. Um, I am, oh my gosh, hello. <laughs> um, this is really emotional for me. Um, I grew up with Toni Morrison in the house, and when Toni Morrison's books came out, my mother rushed to the bookstore and brought, them, brought it home, and then there was silence because she needed to have time with her friend Toni. And in fact, tonight, I'm going to be reading from her copy of Sula. Um, I wish she could be here, so she, I feel like she is here. Um, but my mom was an English teacher, and um, part of what was important to her was filling in stories we did not have when I was going to school. And so that's why Toni Morrison was so important to her, and she channeled that importance and that that love to me. And um, Sula was the first. I know most people read Blue's Eye first often. I read Sula first, and now I read Sula probably, it's not once a year, it used to be, but now it's every couple of years. So um, I want to read from the last section, which is so perfect. Um, one of the things I love about Toni Morrison is her, her ability to paint sense of place. And these small changes that are huge. So it's almost like it's stop motion, you know, when you're, you're reading it. So I'm going to read from the end of the book. And the chapter is titled 1965, so we've gone far. <laughs> Things were so much better in 1965, or so it seemed. You could go downtown and see colored people working in the dime store behind the counters, even handling money with cash register keys around their necks and a colored man taught mathematics at the junior high school. The young people had a look about them that everybody said was new, but which reminded Nell of the Deweys, whom nobody ever had ever found. Maybe, she thought, they had gone off and seeded the land and, and growed up in these young people in the dime store with the cash register keys around their necks. They were so different, these young people so different from the way she remembered them 40 years ago. Jesus, there were some beautiful boys in 1921. Looked like the whole world was bursting at the seams with them. 13, 14, 15 years old. Jesus, they were fine. LP, Paul, Freeman, and his brother Jake, Mrs. Scott's twins, and Ajax had a whole flock of younger brothers. They hung out, uh, they hung out of the attic windows rode on car fenders, delivered the coal, moved into medallion, and moved out. Visited cousins, plowed, hoisted, lounged on the church steps, careened on the school playground. The sun heated them, and the moon slid down their backs. 
God, the world was full of beautiful boys in 1921. Nothing like these kids. Everything had changed. Even the whores were better then. <laughs> Tough, fat, laughing women with burns on their cheeks and wit married to their meanness. Or widows couched in small houses in the woods with eight children to feed and no man. These modern day whores were pale and dull before those women. These little clothes crazy things were always embarrassed, nasty but shamed. They didn't know what shameless was. They should have known. Those silvery widows in the woods who would, let, who would get up from the dinner table and walk into the trees with a customer with as much embarrassment as, calving, as, a, calv, as a calving mayor. Lord, how time flies. She hardly recognized anybody in town anymore. Now there was another old people's home. Look like this town just keep on building homes for old people. Every time they build a road, they built an old folks home. You'd think folks was living longer, but the fact was, they was just being put out faster. Nell hadn't seen the insides of this most recent one yet, but it was her turn in circle number five to visit some of the old women there. The pastor visited them regularly, but the circle thought private visits were, t were nice too. There were just nine colored women out there, the same nine that had been in the other one, but a lot of the white ones. White people didn't fret about putting their old folks away. It took a lot for black people to let them go. And even if somebody was old and alone, others did the dropping by the floor washing, the cooking. Only when they got crazy and unmanageable were they let go. Unless it was somebody like Sula, who put Eva away out of meanness. It was true that Eva was foolish in the end, but not so bad as to need locking up. Nell was more than a little curious to see her. She had been really active in church only a year or less, and that was because the children were grown now and took up less time and less space in her mind. For over 25 years since Jude walked out, she had pinned herself into a tiny life. She spent a little time trying to marry again, and she simply couldn't manage the business of keeping boyfriends. During the war, she had a rather long relationship with a sergeant stationed at the camp 20 miles down the river from Medallion, but then he got called away, and everything was reduced to a few letters, then nothing. Then there was a bartender at the hotel but now she was 55 and hard, to, and hard put to remember what all that had been about. It didn't take long after Jude left for her to see what the future would be. She had looked at her children and knew in her heart that it would be, that would be all, that they were all she would ever know of love. But it was love that like a pan of syrup kept too long on the stove had cooked out, leaving only its odor and a hard, sweet sludge, impossible to scrape off. For the mouths of her children quickly forgot the taste of her nipples, and the years go, they had begun to look past her face into the nearest stretch of sky. In the meantime, the bottom had collapsed. Everybody who had made money during the war moved as close as they could to the valley, and the white people were buying down the river, cross river, stretching medallion, like two strings on the, on the banks, Nobody, color lived much, nobody colored lived much up in the bottom anymore. 
White people will will, were building towers for television stations up there. And there was a rumor about a golf course or something. Anyway, Hillland was more valuable now. And those black people who had moved down right after the war and in the 50s couldn't afford to come back, even if they wanted to, Ex except for the few blacks still huddled by the river bend and some undemolished houses on Carpenter's, Ro Carpenter's Road, only rich white folks were building homes in the hills. Just like that, they had changed their minds. And instead of keeping the valley floor to themselves, now they wanted a hilltop house with a river view and a ring of elms. The black people, for all their new look, seemed awfully anxious to get to the valley or leave town and abandon the hills to whoever was interested. It was sad because the bottom had been a real place. These young ones kept talking about community, but they left the hills to the poor, the old, the stubborn, and the rich white folks. Maybe it hadn't been a community, but it had been a place. Now there weren't any places left, just separate houses with separate televisions and separate telephones and less and less dropping by. Thank you. Thank you, Linnell. Our next book is The Bluest Eye. The Bluest Eye was published in 1970 and is the first novel ever written by Toni Morrison. It is the story of an 11-year-old black girl in America whose love for its blonde, blue-eyed children can devastate all others, who prays for her eyes to turn blue so that she will be beautiful so that people will look at her, so that her world will be different. This is the story of the nightmare at the heart of her yearning and the tragedy of its fulfillment. We'll be having two writers exploring this novel. The first person is Michael Datcher. Dr. Michael Datcher did his undergraduate work at UC Berkeley, his master's at UCLA, his PhD at US, UC Riverside in English Literature. He is the author of the Ferguson area historical novel, Americus, and the critically acclaimed New York Times bestseller, Raising Fences, also a Today Show book club of the month. Datcher is also the author of the book of literary theory, Animating Black and Brown Liberation, A Theory of American Literatures. He is co-editor of Tough Love, The Life and Death of Tupac Shakur, Datcher's play Silence was commissioned by and premiered at the Getty Museum. He is a co-host of the weekly public affairs news magazine. And he has a great voice, by the way. He has an awesome voice. Beautiful struggle on 90.7 FM KPFK. Please welcome Michael Datcher. Autumn. Nuns go by as quiet as lust, and drunken men in sober eyes sing in the lobby of the Greek hotel. Rosemary Villanucci, our next door friend who lives above her father's cafe, sits in a 1939 Buick, eating bread and butter. She rolls down the window to tell my sister Frida and me that we can't come in. We stare at her, wanting her bread, but more that more than that, wanting to poke the arrogance out of her eyes and smash the pride of ownership that curls her chewing mouth. 
when she comes out of the car, we will beat her up, make red marks on her white skin, and she will cry and ask us, do we want her to pull her pants down? We will say no. We don't know what we should feel or do if she does, but whenever she asks us, we know she is offering us something precious and that our own pride must be asserted by refusing to accept. School has started, and Frida and I get new brown stockings and cod liver oil. Grown-ups talk in tired, edgy voices about Zick's coal company and take us along the evening to the railroad tracks where we fill burlap sacks with the tiny pieces of coal lying about. Later, we walk home, glancing back to see the great carloads of slag being dumped red hot and smoking into the ravine that skirts the steel mill. The dying fire lights the sky with a dull orange glow. Frida and I lag behind, staring at the patch of color surrounded by black. It is impossible not to feel a shiver when our feet leave the gravel path and sink into the dead grass of the field. Our house is old, cold, and green. At night, a kerosene lamp lights one large room. The others are braced in darkness, peopled by roaches and mice. Adults do not talk to us. They give us directions. They issue orders without providing information. When we trip and fall down, they glance at us. If we cut or bruise ourselves, they ask us, are we crazy? When we catch colds, they shake their heads in disgust at our lack of consideration. How, they ask, do you expect anybody to get anything done if you are all sick? We cannot answer them. Our illness is treated with contempt, black, foul black draft, and castor oil that blunts our minds. When on a day after a trip to collect coal, I cough once loudly through bronchial tubes already packed tight with phlegm. My mother frowns, great Jesus, get on in that bed. How many times have I told you, have to tell you to wear something on your head? You must be the biggest fool in this town. Frida, get some rags and stuff her window. Frida restuffs the window. I trudge off to bed full of guilt and self-pity. I lie down in my underwear, the metal in my black garters hurts my legs, but I do not take them off, for it is too cold to lie stockingless. It takes a long time for my body to heat in the place in the bed. Once I have generated a silhouette of warmth, I dare not move, for there is a cold place one half inch in any direction. No one speaks to me or asks how I feel. In an hour or two, my mother comes. Her hands are large and rough, and when she rubs the Vic salve on my chest, I am rigid with pain. She takes two fingers full, it, full of it at a time and massages in my chest until I am faint. Just when I think I will tip over into a scream, she scoops out a little of the salve on her forefinger and puts it in my mouth, my mouth telling me to swallow a, a hot flannel was wrapped about my neck and chest. I am covered up with heavy quilts in order to sweat, which I do promptly. Later, I throw up. And my mother says, what did you puke on the bed clothes for? Don't you have sense enough to hold your head out the bed? Now look what you did. You think I got time for nothing but washing up your puke? The puke swaddles down the pillow into the sheet. 
green, gray, the flecks of orange. It moves like the insides of an uncooked egg, stubbornly clinging to its own mass, refusing to break up and be removed. How, I wonder, can it be so neat and nasty at the same time? My mother's voice drones on. She is not talking to me. She is talking to the puke, but she is calling it my name, <laughs> Claudia. She wipes it up as best as she can and puts the scratchy tile over the large wet place. I lie down again. The rags have fallen from the window crack and the air is cold. I dare not call her back and am reluctant to leave my warmth. My mother's anger humiliates me. Her words chafe my cheeks and I am crying. I do not know that she is not angry at me but at my sickness. I believe she despises my weakness for letting the sickness take hold. By and by I will not get sick, I will refuse to, but for now I am crying. I know I am making more snot, but I cannot stop. My sister comes in, her eyes are full of sorrow. She sings to me when the deep purple falls over sleepy garden walls. Someone thinks of me. I doze thinking of plums, walls, and someone. But was it really like that, as painful as I remember? Only mildly, or rather, it was a productive and fructifying pain Love, thick and dark as a lager syrup, eased up into that cracked window. I could smell it, taste it sweet, musty with an edge of winter green in its base everywhere in that house. It stuck along with my tongue to the frosted window panes. It coated my chest along with the salve, and when the flannel came undone in my sleep, the clear, sharp curves of air outlined its presence on my throat. And in the night, when my coughing was dry and tough, feet padded into the room, hands repinned the flannel, readjusted the quote, and rested a moment on my forehead. So, when I think of autumn, I think of somebody with hands who does not want me to die. Thank you. My college mentor, Barbara Christian, was the scholar who really brought Toni Morrison uh, into the academic and eventually the, uh, the, 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 the popular culture. This book only sold, they say, at the time when it first came out, a total of over 600 books when it first came out. But the writing about uh, Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye brought that book to academics who then taught that book in class and then eventually, of course, the world uh, came hold of this book. So as an undergraduate, I was in Barbara Christian's class. At the time, I was a person who was studying business. I wanted to, basically, I was a poor black kid who wanted to make money, because being broke is no fun. <laughs> so literally, I took this class as a complete uh, uh, elective. It was, uh, it was, it was African-American writing from 1945 into the present. And I would go and sit in class and be so spellbound. I would come to class early and just sit and wait for her to come into class and teach about Toni Morrison. I was so blown away that I actually called my mother after that class and I said, Mom, there's been a change in the master plan. <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna be a corporate raider with the Brooks Brothers suit 
but don't, she's like, baby, baby. I said, no, no, don't worry. Mom, I've got a great follow-up, uh, fallback plan. She's like, baby, baby. I said, mom, it's cool. I'm going to be a poet and a writer. Isn't that great? And my mother began to curse and scream as black women will do when they're upset at their kids. So for me, Toni Morrison is an example of the power of black excellence to transform lives, because that's basically my story. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. To continue exploring the bluest eye is Dana Johnson. Dana Johnson is the author of a short story collection in the Not Quite Dark. She is also the author of Break Any Woman Down, winner of the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction and the novel Elsewhere, California. Both books were nominees for the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review and the Iowa Review, born and raised right here in LA. She is a professor of English at the University of Southern California. Please welcome Dana Johnson. Um, so I have taught the bluest eye every year for the last 12 years, every fall. And I teach it in my girlhood course, which is a course that I think is really important. Um, in that course, I try to have students read books that make them examine sort of why they think the things that they think about themselves and how they come to view themselves. And I'm really, at the end of the day, asking them to reject a lot of the narratives that America is giving them. So, and this book is just genius for that. And um, I learn from Morrison every day. Um, I've taught it for the last 12 years, but I've had to have read it at least 24, 25 times. It's just that book for me. Um, so I thought I'd read a section, if you guys don't know, uh, Claudia and Frida are sisters in 1941, um, Lorraine, Ohio. And Claudia knows who she is. She is very proud of who she is as a young woman, but she's starting to get these messages through the culture that who and what she is as a young black woman is not only not enough, but is um, less. It's, it's not uh, how she views herself at all. So this scene, Morrison is really funny. And this is one of my favorite scenes. It's. Um, they have this new classmate named Maureen Peel and they can't stand her, Claudia and her sister, because she's light-skinned and she's got this long hair flowing down her back and she's got the most beautiful clothes and they can't stand her. And so this scene before, um, she asks them if they wanna go get ice cream, but then she only buys ice cream for herself and Pecola, so they're just, they're, the, the anger is ratcheted up. And Maureen asks Pecola, a question, has she seen her father naked? And this just further infuriates Frida and Claudia and they get, it turns into a big old fight. So here's that scene. You stop asking about her daddy, I said. What do, you, what do I care about her old black daddy, asked Maureen. <laughs> black, who you calling black? You? You think you're so cute. I swung at her and missed, hitting Pecola in the face. Furious at my clumsiness, I threw my notebook at her, but it caught her in the small of her velvet back, for she had turned and was flying across the street against traffic. 
Safe on the other side, she screamed at us, I am cute and you ugly. Black and ugly black emos, I am cute. She ran down the street, the green knee socks making her legs look like wild dandelion stems that had somehow lost their heads. The weight of her remarks stunned us, and it was a second or two before Frida and I collected ourselves enough to shout, six-fingered dog-tooth meringue pie. She has a dog tooth that they, that's the one flaw that they enjoy about her. We chanted this most powerful of our arsenal of insults as long as we could see the green stems and rabbit fur. Grown people frowned at the three girls on the curbside, two with their coats draped over their heads, the collars framing the eyebrows like nuns' habits, black garters showing where they bit the tops of brown stockings that barely covered the knees, angry faces nodded like dark cauliflowers. Pecola stood a little apart from us, her eyes hinged in the direction in which Maureen had fled. She seemed to fold into herself like a pleated wing. Her pain antagonized me. I wanted to open her up, crisp her edges, ram a stick down that hunched and curving spine, force her to stand erect, and spit the misery out on the street. But she held it in where it could lap up into her eyes. Frida snatched her coat from her head, Come on, Claudia. Bye, Bacola. We walked quickly at first and then slower, pausing every now and then to fasten garters, tie shoelaces, scratch, or examine old scars. We were sinking under the wisdom, accuracy, and relevance of Marine's last words. If she was cute, and if anything could be believed she was, then we were not. And what did that mean? We were lesser. Nicer, brighter, but still lesser. Dolls we could destroy, but we could not destroy the honey voices of parents and aunts, the obedience in the eyes of our peers, the slippery light in the eyes of our teachers when they encountered the marine peels of the world. What was the secret? What did we lack? Why was it important? And so what? Guileless, and without vanity, we were still in love with ourselves then. We felt comfortable in our skins, enjoyed the news that our senses released to us, admired our dirt, cultivated our scars, and we could not comprehend this unworthiness. Jealousy we understood and thought natural, a desire to have what somebody else had, but envy was a strange new feeling for us, and all the time we knew that Marine Peel was not the enemy and not worthy of such intense hatred. The thing to fear was the thing that made her beautiful and not us. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dana. That was wonderful. Um, so I've been hosting events here at Skylight Books for 19 years. So yeah, <laughs> I've introduced hundreds of people over the years, hundreds of people. And I always say that you can tell a writer is a really big deal depending on all the other writers who show up for her. So I wanted to acknowledge some of the writers who are in the audience tonight. Janet Fitch is here in our first row. Thank you for coming. Carrie Madden, author in the back, thank you. 
Shonda Buchanan, who has a book coming out soon. Thank you. Emerging poet, Dare Williams, thank you. Pat Alderete, thank you. Felicia Loomis, thank you. Amanda Fletcher, thank you for coming. Amazing performance artist, Ron Athey, thank you for coming. And I'm so happy that he was able to come tonight, Walter Mosley. Thank you so much for coming tonight. <laughs> so there are so many books that we could explore, but we can't stay here all night. Other books by Toni Morrison. Love, a personal favorite of mine is Tar Baby, Home, Mercy, lots of them. But we could not call this a Toni Morrison tribute without this particular book. Can you guess? <laughs> Beloved, okay. Beloved, uh, from uh, the Library Journal, powerful is too tame a word to describe Toni Morrison's searing novel of post-Civil War Ohio. Morrison, whose myth-laden storytelling shown in Song of Solomon and other novels, has created an unforgettable world in this novel about ex-slaves haunted by violent memories. Before the war, Sethi, pregnant, sent her children away to their grandmother in, in Ohio, whose freedom had been paid for by their father. Sethi runs, runs too, but when her owners come to recapture her, she attempts to murder the children, succeeding with one named Beloved. This murder will literally haunt Sethi for the rest of her life and affect everyone around her. A fascinating, grim, relentless story. This important book by a major writer belongs in libraries. Beloved went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. Yes, let's applaud Beloved. We have two writers who will be exploring Beloved. The first one is Nina Revoir. Nina was born in Japan to a Japanese mother and a white American father and grew up in Tokyo, Wisconsin, and Los Angeles. She is the author of six novels. Her first, The Necessary Hunger, was described by Time Magazine as the kind of irresistible book you read start, you, uh, you start to read on the subway at 6 p.m. on the way home from work and keep plowing through until you've turned the last page at 3 a.m. in bed. <laughs> Nina was a longtime executive vice president and chief operating officer of a nonprofit organizing serving children affected by violence and poverty in Los Angeles. She now works in philanthropy as part of an effort to improve economic mobility for low income children and their families. Nina has been an, an associate faculty member at Antioch University and a visiting professor at Cornell Occidental College. Pitzer and Pomona. She lives in Los Angeles with her spouse and their dogs. Please welcome Nina Ravor. Wow, what, what an amazing turnout for a Friday night. Um, incredible people. I, think, I don't think you mentioned Aaron, Aubrey Kaplan, who's, who's uh, also here. Great to, great to see you. Um, just, it's such an honor. Uh, Noel, thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. It is such an honor to be um, here celebrating Toni Morrison with so many of my friends and amazing uh, writers in, in Los Angeles and just, uh, just happy to be here. As you heard from Noel, um, I am obviously a writer, 
I'm an immigrant, um, mixed race kid. Um, I'm gay. Uh, when we first moved to the States, uh, we went to rural Wisconsin where I faced uh, really tremendous and sometimes violent racism. Um, my own writings about race and history and communities of color, how we come together, sometimes how we come apart. And I say all of this to explain a little bit about what Toni Morrison means to me and uh, why I love her. And I love her for many reasons, but there's a couple of primary ones. First, of course, is because of her example and guidance, which others have spoken about. Uh, Morrison's world is not my world. But in giving voice and visibility to black people, to black history, to black experience, in such a beautiful, honoring way, she created the room and the space for other folks who've been overlooked to write about our own stories as well. Um, and I think that in her writing, she provides guideposts uh, for understanding humanity in the world. Um, she highlights the best and the worst of us, and that's a kind of guidance that, that seems even more important now, which makes her loss even greater now because of what is happening in the world. Then, of course, the second reason I love her is because she's just such a fucking great, amazing writer. <laughs> um, the power, the beauty of her writing is like nothing else, no one else. Song of Solomon, one of my favorite books, it was, it was a revelation. I think I fell in love with Pilate the first time I read that. Um, I read Jazz, you know, we, we started today, I read that over and over and over again. It was, I think, the only book I had in English in Japan in the early 90s, and I just read, read that repeatedly. I've, I've taught it many times. Um, for those of you who've read my novel, Southland, you might see echoes of Sula in its first few pages. Uh, the prologue that describes the Crenshaw district in, in Southland might be a little reminiscent of descriptions of the bottom in the first few pages of Sula. But my favorite Toni Morrison novel, my favorite novel ever in the whole world, is this one, uh, Beloved. And this is, I think, the first, first edition I ever owned. Um, some of you probably know the famous quote from Emily Dickinson about how you know something is poetry. Do you guys know that quote? Oh, man. Okay. Another genius. If I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold, no fire can warm me, I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. These are the only ways I know it. Is there any other way? Um, <laughs> beloved, like so much of Morrison, took off the top of my head like that. It's, it's, uh, I couldn't believe a novel could do what Beloved did. I couldn't believe it sounded and read the way that it did. Uh, I have read this in many times in my life, in my 20s, 30s, and 40s, and it was just so interesting. You know, I used to be younger than the characters, and then I was the same age, and then I was older. And <laughs> I know, I know, I know, but uh, it just shows, you know, I could relate to it in, in, at, at every age and understand it differently at every age. Um, and it has just, no, it just means more. And Felicia, when we read it, my, my wife is back here. We met right at that tree. Um, <laughs> seriously, um, that's a more involved story. But, um, <laughs> but we had our own, I mean, it's the only book we've ever read at the same time. We had kind of a private book club a couple years ago because I, we, we just had to read it. I love this book so much. And I'll just say a couple things about it. First is that the way that, to the way that Toni Morrison writes everybody, but the way that she writes men, um, with such generosity and understanding is, 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 uh, is beautiful. And, and the other thing is that the way that she is able to link and mingle beauty and pain together in the same books, in the same passages, is just, is just unparalleled. So I want to read a very, very short passage uh, from the first chapter of Beloved where this is, I think, all demonstrated. Paul D. has just arrived after not having seen Setha in many years since they were slaves at the plantation that... It crazily was known as Sweet Home. 
Um, she's just told them that the house that she's living in is, is haunted and has also told them that there's a network of scars on her back in the shape of a tree from a brutal beating that she suffered when they were still in slavery. Once more, Setha touched a wet forefinger to the stove. She opened the oven door and slid the pan of biscuits in. As she raised up from the heat, she felt Paul D. behind her and his hands under her breasts. She straightened up and knew, but could not feel, that his cheek was pressing into the branches of her choke cherry tree. Not even trying, he'd become the kind of man who could walk into a house and make the women cry. Because with him, in his presence, they could. There was something blessed in his manner. Women saw him and wanted to weep, to tell him that their chest hurt and their knees did too. Strong women and wise saw him and told him things they only told each other. That way past the change of life, desire in them had suddenly become enormous, greedy, more savage than when they were 15. And that it embarrassed them and made them sad. That secretly they longed to die, to be quit of it. That sleep was more precious to them than any waking day. Young girls sidled up to him to confess or describe how well-dressed the visitations were that had followed them straight from their dreams. Therefore, although he did not understand why this was so, he was not surprised when Denver dripped tears into the stove fire, nor 15 minutes later, after telling him about her stolen milk, her mother wept as well. Behind her, bending down, his body an arc of kindness, he held her breasts in the palms of his hands. He rubbed his cheek on her back and learned that way her sorrow, the roots of it, its wide trunk and intricate branches. Raising his fingers to the hooks of her dress, he knew without seeing them or hearing any sigh that the tears were coming fast. And when the top of her dress was around her hips and he saw the sculpture her back had become, like the decorative work of an ironsmith too passionate for display, he could think but not say, oh, Lord, girl. And he would tolerate no peace until he had touched every ridge and leaf of it with his mouth none of which Setha could feel because her back skin had been dead for years. What she knew was that the responsibility for her breasts at last was in somebody else's hands. Would there be a little space, she wondered, a little time, some way to hold off eventfulness, to push busyness into the corners of the room and just stand there for a minute or two, naked from the shoulder blade to waist, relieved of the weight of her breasts, smelling the stolen milk again, and the pleasure of baking bread? Maybe this one time she could stop dead still in the middle of, cooking, of a cooking meal, not even leave the stove, and feel the hurt her back ought to. Trust things and remember things, because the last of the sweet home men was there to catch her if she sank. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. And to continue exploring, beloved, is Natasha Dion. Yes, applaud Natasha. <laughs> Natasha is an NAACP Image Award nominee and author of the critically acclaimed novel, Grace, awarded the 2017 American Library Association's Black Caucus Award for Best Debut Fiction. Grace was also named a New York Times Top Book of 2016, a Kirkus Review Best Book of 2016, and a, a Favorite Book of 2016 from Book Riot, The Root, and Entropy Magazine. 
She is the founder of Redeemed, a nonprofit that pairs professional writers with those who have been convicted of crimes. Dayon is a practicing criminal attorney, law professor, and a creative writing professor at UCLA and Antioch University. Dayon is, is the mother of two and is the creator of the popular LA-based reading series, Dirty Laundry Lit and the Table. Please welcome Natasha Dayon. <laughs> Hello. I'm going to move this a little bit. Um, I was at an event on Saturday at the Reparations Club in um, further down in LA in the Mid Wilshire District. And it was just a room full of black women. And it was the, one of the most beautiful expressions that I've seen about Toni Morrison women crying and feeling connected in a way because she wasn't just a book. She was a person, she was a black woman, she was the experience. And sometimes I heard someone say earlier um, about how she was always writing and what it's like to write when you're just, that was everything. She put it in a book, she's like, here, take this. Like she did very few appearances in her life because it was everything. Um, and she's a woman, as a black woman, she's somebody who kept recreating herself throughout history as what it meant to be a black woman changed. So even the black woman that I was, you know, of yesterday was the woman who's holding open the door. The black women today are going in, demanding things, and it's beautiful. And she survived and made different iterations of herself every time. And so even to stand here, I remember at that meeting, to see all these young black women not feeling... I felt inadequate to even be in that room. Like, they're crying, I'm like, I'm not crying. <laughs> I'm not close enough, what's wrong with me? I'm not close, am I dead inside? But just recognizing how alive she is and how she means something different to everyone and how we're making and remaking ourselves. And it reminds me of that Lucille Clifton poem, won't you celebrate with me what I've made into a kind of life? I had no model, born in Babylon, both non-white and a woman. I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other. Come and celebrate with me that every day something tried to kill me and failed. There is a loneliness that can be rocked. Arms crossed, knees drawn up, holding, holding on. This motion, unlike a ship's, smooth and contains the rocker. This loneliness is an inside kind, wrapped tight like skin. Then there is a loneliness that roams. No rocking can hold it down. It is alive on its own a dry and spreading thing that makes the sound of one's own feet going seem to come from a far off place. Everybody knew what she was called, but nobody anywhere knew her name. Disremembered and unaccounted for, she cannot be lost because no one is looking for her. And even if they were, how can they call her if they don't even know her name? Although she has claim, she is not claimed. 
In a place where long grass opens, the girl who waited to be loved and cries shame erupts into her separate parts to make it easy for the chewing laughter to swallow her all away. It was not a story to pass on. They forgot her like a bad dream. After they made up their tails, shaped and decorated them, those that saw her that day on the porch quickly and deliberately forgot her. It took longer for those who had spoken to her, lived with her, fallen in love with her, to forget until they realized they couldn't remember or repeat a single thing she said and began to believe that other than what they themselves were thinking, she hadn't said anything at all. So in the end, those forgot her too. Remembering seemed unwise. It was not a story to pass on. So they forgot her, like an unpleasant dream during a troubling sleep. Occasionally, however, the rustle of a skirt hushes when they wake, and the knuckles brushing a cheek in the sleep seem to belong to the sleeper, maybe. Sometimes the photograph of a close friend or relative looked at too long shifts, and something more familiar than the dear face itself moves there. They could touch it if they like, but don't, because they know things will never be the same if they do. You see, this is not a story to pass on. Down by the stream in back of 124, her footprints come and go, come and go. They are so familiar. Should a child, an adult, place his feet in them, they will fit. Take them out and they disappear again as though nobody ever walked there. By and by, all trace is gone. And what is forgotten is not only the footprints, but the water too. And what is down there, the rest is weather. Not the breath of the disremembered and unaccounted for, but wind in the eaves or spring ice thawing too quickly. Just weather. Certainly no clamor for a kiss. Beloved, thank you. Thank you, Natasha. And thank you all very much for coming. It is hard to even accept that there will be no more Toni Morrison novels. It's very hard to accept. But we, but we do have what she did right, and let's celebrate that. Um, I want to thank all of the writers who came here tonight. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. All the writers who came to support the event, all of you, thank you so, so much. We close at 10 o'clock, but feel free to wander the store. Talk books. Talk Toni Morrison. Talk all you want. Thank you all very much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.